to a return Saturday stream. Been off for about a month and change at this point. Very glad to see you all again. I went to a wedding and then I essentially just took a bunch of downtime because felt like I needed it. Worked on videos and podcasts and stuff like that. Trying to get back to sort of what I made this channel for. So I think these streams are going to be a little bit more infrequent than they have been in the past. Like I, I don't think I'm going to do weekly, maybe bi-weekly or something like that. But hey, don't worry. We're all back. We're having a good time hanging out on a Saturday as winter falls on us all. If you guys missed it before the stream went live, everything went to hell. Nothing was working. Don't use OBS Streamlabs. So the people that were here and bless you all that stuck through that as you just see my frustrated face typing away and trying to figure out what's going on with my program. Uh, thank you guys for sticking around. And a few super chats came in despite the fact that I was doing nothing but making frowny faces at my computer. Uh, a peach from Mallory, aka San Rixian. Thank you so much, Mallory. She was also trying to help me in the, in the patron slack. $5 from the happy masquerade or the stream returns. Sort of. Yeah, it kind of did. And $20 from Morally. Thank you so much, Mora. Just a show of love and appreciation for you. Mora also left me a few very nice messages on uh, Patreon. So thank you, Mora. I think there was also some PayPal stuff. Hang on. I saw it on like, yeah, uh, $5 from Danny McKay is uh normal happy saturday thanks danny appreciate it so yeah this stream is supposed to be about damon blackfire but specifically damon blackfire when he was a young man we did this a while back with aziz from history of westeros we talked about blood raven but we didn't just sort of we didn't talk about all of blood raven we didn't talk about his his time being on the night's watch we didn't talk about him being hand of the king him becoming the three-eyed raven or anything like that we sort of focused more on the young life of Blood Raven, what it was like from his King's Landing, what it was like being a bastard of Aegon the Fourth and all that other kind of stuff. I thought that'd be a good thing to do for Damon, because Damon is such a large figure in Westeros and in the Song of Ice and Fire lore in general, although curiously does not start off that way. Damon, we're going to talk about that. Damon is a relatively late addition to the books, but still such a massive topic, and his legacy has basically echoed throughout the entire history of the realm ever since he decided, hey, I decided should be king. So yeah, it's going to be the general topic for today. We're going to talk about who Damon was, what it was like for him growing up, his relationship to the to his brothers and his sisters and the royal family in general, his relationship to a crown and his father, all this other fun kind of stuff. Oh, you guys are wearing your your Joe Magician spooky trees. Oh, Guilty Undertaker, you're wearing an ass waffle shirt, shirt too. Yeah, that's what's up. Good and comfy. Speaking of Threadless, I do have a Threadless shop where you can go and pick up the Mighty Joe Magician merch. Let me just pull this up right now. Yay, there it is. So that's the spooky tree Mallory's talking about in the chat on the left-hand side. The logo of the channel, my very cool magician looking backwards at the camera. Just the hat. And then, of course, the ass waffle, which I'm wearing today on my shirt. Links are down in the description, I believe. It's like threadless.com slash Joe Magician or something like that. For most of December, Threadless is running sales, but you can pick up like mug shirts. There's even some lucky people out there with swaffle leggings, which continue to make me laugh the whole time. Bless those of you that brace your legs with a peach and a waffle. That always gets me. I think I'm going to do a giveaway late as we get closer to Christmas. I have a whole bunch of Threadless codes that never got used, so may find a way to just give those away so you guys can pick up some stuff. No promises on that one, but I 
I do have a bunch. I just got to use them at some point. Oh, yeah, that's right. Egret, a K2. She has she has the asshole leggings. They look amazing, but also very funny to me. For what I put out while I was on vacation, basically, uh, Dying of the Light episode 10 or chapter 10 uh, was released a few weeks ago. If you didn't check it out, that was me, Eliana, aka Glass Table Girl, and Michael, aka Bookshelf Stud. That's right. We got Mr. Monthly back together, or at least three of the hosts. And we talked some Dirk Talarian. We talked some Warlorn, all that other kind of stuff. And fun fact, even though most of the Dying Light read-through is patron-only, I made that one free for anyone to check it out. So I'm just going to go ahead and pop that in the chat if you want to go. You just have to go to Patreon and click Play, and you'll be able to hear it. It's two and a half hours of maester monthly goodness more or less there are some outtakes that were fairly ridiculous that i had to cut our our banter was strong is basically what happened there aaron you had to try to explain my old logo that's kind of a tough one uh, it's it's not the most easy to explain thing i guess for you just be like it's some merch from a youtuber i like for me it's just like well i had a complicated theory that's probably not right but that's kind of i thought it was a cool image and Mallory made it look cool, so kind of what's going on. And um, Dying of the Light Chapter 11 went up early this morning by like at like 3 a.m. For Archmaesters and up, it'll be available for all Maester level patrons and up starting tomorrow. The book's almost done, so this is how big Dying of the Light is, and we're about, where are we? We're here. So this is how much book is left. We're almost at the end of it. Very short one. Back when George could write a short book. Got him. Supposedly, Lady Gwyn of uh, Radio Westeros is going to join me for at least one episode, maybe two, as we get later. Oh, ooh, what was that? And go ahead and drink some water. I did not wash that very well. It tastes like coffee still. But yeah, so check all that stuff out at patreon.com slash Joe Magician. You can get, um, there's two free episodes, I think. One of the episodes with Aziz and then that one with Eliana and Michael. So if you want to check it out, feel like that's... I'll read through you want to get on board George R. R. Martin's first book. Give us a shot. And so I think it's time we get going on Big Daddy Damon himself. Well, different Daddy Damon. Not Damon Targaryen, but Damon Blackfire. There's a really good quote here that from the World of Ice and Fire that's kind of describes quite a lot about Damon, just like at a very basic level. This is the quote about after he was born and said, Damon was the name Dana gave to this child. For Prince Damon had been the wonder and terror of his age, and in later days that was seen as a warning of what the boy would become. Boy, that's kind of an ominous way to start a, a story about a, about a character, that a wonder and terror on his age. And yeah, I think that's a fair way of describing him. Damon caused a lot of havoc. He ended up creating decades of war tens, hundreds of thousands of deaths, probably by the end of, not just by him, but by his legacy and his uh, children and grandchildren after him. And even still felt to this day, there's, there's no way around it. Damon's legacy is fire and blood, to say the least. I guess George got that one right. It turns out civil wars are usually bad. And especially when it's Targaryens involved, they just sort of keep going forever, just forever wars in some way. Actually, I got an email about this. Uh, Patrick Doherty, he emailed me. I'm going to read it later. But he made the case that Blackfire Rebellions is, the ex is an extension of the Dance of the Dragons, the second Targaryen Civil War. Yeah, it's the second one. Magor, 
fought a civil war basically too. So there's been three of them. But I think it's important to go over like who actually is Damon Blackfire? Who the hell am I talking about? Just kind of a brief overview of a story. If you're the kind of person that has not gotten very deep into the lore of Westeros beyond like the TV show or just reading A Song of Ice and Fire and the Tar and the Targaryen dynasty, like you may not know who he is because he gets brought up a lot, but his main story is largely pushed into side products. So there's probably very few of you like that in my particular audience showing up today, but you never know. Damon Blackfire is the bastard is a bastard prince who began a civil war for the Iron Throne against his brother, well, his half brother, roughly a hundred years before Song of Ice and Fire begins with Wild Garrett and Waymar finding the others beyond the wall. So it's relatively recent. That's one of those things I think that tricks people about the Blackfire rebellions is that you think the Targaryens have been in power for so, so long that all these things must be in the way past. But no, the Blackfire rebellions are in living memory, at least the tail end of them. Not many people, I think there's only two characters alive at the start of A Song of Ice and Fire that actually knew Damon. Maybe only one. It may only be Bloodraven and his alive status is a little tenuous, but it is relatively recent. It has continued to echo throughout the traumas of those wars and the way it split the realm is in large part what allowed Robert to make his Robert's Rebellion that had Damon not taken up the sword and fought for the throne, then it's probably unlikely Westeros would be where it is today in a very, not in like a butterfly flapping its wings way, but in a very, very large scale political way. I don't know if Maester Eamon actually knew Damon Blackfire. Maybe. It, the crossover would have been, it wouldn't have been by that much time. If he knew him, he would have been very young. If I remember right that. Now, let me look up when Eamon lived. But let's just do this real fast. So Damon Blackfire died in 196 AC. Maester Eamon was born in 198. So Maester Eamon did not know Damon Blackfire personally. He never met the man. Well, his parents did. They would have known Damon. So yeah, it's basically just uh, Bloodraven at the at the start of on the Song of Ice and Fire. He's the only one that actually knew the man. So the story goes that Damon took the took his name from the sword Blackfire, which is given to him by his father, King Aegon the Fourth, otherwise known as the Unworthy. And later in life, after being legitimized along with his many, many, many bastard half siblings, Damon rose in rebellion against King Daron the Good. His rebellion obviously failed as the Blackfires. Do not sit on the Iron Throne, but his children and grandchildren fought for decades in successive Blackfire rebellions, as they were called. I think there were four of them in total, maybe five. I know at least four until they died out with Melis the Monstrous being slain by Sir Barristan Selmy on the Stepstones. And that is effectively the end of House Blackfire. When if you think about how old Barristan is, he's this was when he was like 20 or 30. So the Blackfires kept going for quite a long time. And Damon himself is a very divisive figure in not only in universe and a song of ice and fire, but the fandom as well. And generally given the most support among any rebel king to the Iron Throne that we've seen, unless you count somebody like Rob Stark, but specifically among Targaryen pretenders and or vaguely Targaryens like the Baratheons, generally Damon's pretty high up there. I ran a poll a few years, not a few years back, but a little while ago, trying to see how people felt about these rebelling civil war leaders. And among those, I was looking at Aegon II, Damon Blackfire, and I included Renly. It was a Stannis during versus Renly thing. I wanted to see if there was like any differences between them. Like if you supported Renly, 
do you support Damon more or do you support Aegon II more? That kind of thing. Aegon II ended up coming in with the lowest. He'll be in House of the Dragon, of course. Just about a little bit less than a quarter to about a fifth of the people responded, which and hundreds of people responded, said they thought Aegon II had a good cause for what he was doing. Uh, Renly, who is, I guess, vaguely a Targaryen, uh, he came in around a quarter versus Stannis. Uh, that's, that seems just about right. There's quite a lot of Stannis support out there. And then when you're looking at Damon, he had roughly respondents, no matter which Stannis and Renly they supported, about a third of those responding said that Damon had the best cause versus Daron II, his, his half-brother. Although I think there definitely is a part of it that in the Sworn Swords, Sir Eustace Osgrave makes his passionate defense of Damon. So George really makes a case for Damon and why he should have been king versus the other ones in a way that you don't really see from Renly and Aegon. Renly makes his own case, but that's about it. Most other people tend to think of him, or at least the characters talking about Renly, just go like, eh, he's not that impressive. Aegon II, too, there's nothing really, there's no character traits or anything to hang your hat on for Aegon. It just really seems like a power grab. George actually goes to the, goes to the effort of trying to make Damon seem a lot more likable, and that he wanted it to be a little bit more uncertain about which side you should root for in the Blackfire Rebellions, although most of the fandom ends up going for Daron anyway. So there's also something I referenced this in the intro talking about Damon Blackfire's relative late inclusion in a Song of Ice and Fire. And I tell the section Damon Blackfire does and does not exist in a way. And what I mean by this is there's sort of this long standing idea in the fandom at large and generally within like fan theorists that George has this like grand master plan for a Song of Ice and Fire that Every detail, every bit of history, everything that sort of fits together perfectly into this large meta story surrounding it. And that he's just, he's got it all in his head and he's doing a slow burn to review. And if you connect everything in the right way, you'll understand everything. And Damon Blackfire and his siblings are maybe one of the most dramatic examples of how untrue that, I, that perception really is. So, for instance, if you go into a Song of Ice and Fire search and you search for Damon Blackfire, he is not mentioned in any way until a storm of swords in Davos 4 when Stannis says this. It has always been so. I am not, I am not a cruel man, Sir Davos. You know me, have known me long. That is not my decree. It has always been so since Aegon's day and before. Damon Blackfire, the brothers Toyn, the Vulture King, Grand Maester Harith. Traitors have always paid with their lives. Even when she was a daughter to a king and a mother to two more, yet she died a traitor's death. For trying to usurp her brother's crown. It is law. Law, Davos, not cruelty. That's the first mention of Damon Blackfire in the story. George is explicitly calling him a traitor. He's uh, linking him with people that were executed for being traitors, which is not really what happened to Damon. I mean, but that's the introduction to his character. Also, definitely Stannis is wrong here about traitor. He did not usurp anything. But funny story about Stannis. He has a very interesting view of history. And the second time that Damon is mentioned is in Jamie 5. He, during the bath scene with Brienne of Tarth, he's speaking about Eris realizing, hey, I might be like totally fucked here. This is the quote. He said he had finally realized that Robert was no mere outlaw lord to be crushed at whim, but the greatest threat House Targaryen had faced since Damon Blackfire. So those are the introductions to the character. This is the framing George is giving you. He's a threat that Damon nearly toppled the Targaryen dynasty and that he's a traitor. That's what he wants you to think about him. He goes in later and adds a lot more detail and stuff, but that's kind of it. 
And if you go read The Hedge Knight as well, there's a very conspicuous absence or absences in that novella. There's no real talk of the Blackfires at all in The Hedge Knight, despite the next two in the series of Duncan Egg, The Sworn Sword and the, the, Sworn Sword and the Mystery Knight being so full of Blackfires and information about them that it's almost overwhelming that part of the reason for those two novellas is basically Blackfire lore dumps. George does a lot better job of that than he did in other works of his. It's much more married into the narrative a lot better, but th there's nothing in the Hedge Knight. They basically don't exist. And Blood, Ra Blood Raven as well, who should have been highly active during the Hedge Knight, is also completely absent. This is because, from a Dolis perspective, that George had not made them up yet. There were no Blackfire Rebellions. There was no Blood Raven. Damon and that history had not been... He had not written it down anywhere. It didn't exist in his head. It's in between the publishing of The Hedge Knight in 1998 and A Storm of Swords in 2000 that he actually sort of sits down and comes up with all these characters and all this history. Like, for instance, he's gotten questions before about how long did he know that Bloodraven was the Three-Eyed Crow? And the answer is that George didn't. He only knew that there was a placeholder Targaryen that was the Three-Eyed Crow, the person contacting Bran, and that later he was going to develop the whole character with a backstory, but he didn't have it initially. It was a sort of like a vague hole in the story. It was like an outline of a character, but he didn't know who it was. There wasn't anything there. And I think what ended up tripping him to start thinking up of the Blackfires and making up Bloodraven and Damon and all that stuff is that as Bran is getting fairly close to meeting the Three-Eyed Crow by the end of A Storm of Swords. I think he meets, he meets cold hands, he gets beyond the wall, and it's in the next, well, book, kind of, A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons, which you can just sort of compress into A Feast for Dragons, I guess. Those, those are basically two, not, two volumes of the same book that they happen side by side each other, unlike the first three, which are chronological mostly, that George decided he couldn't delay anymore, and then he started thinking of the backstory of this grizzly tree wizard character and started writing in things like Damon, although Bloodraven himself is not mentioned until A Feast for Crows and, and The Sworn Sword. That's when his first introduction to the story is. But Damon came first. Uh, Patrick Doherty, the local <laughs> Blackfire enthusiast, Fagon will be the sixth. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely going to fight against Daenerys. It's not going to be Good, because there's no such thing as a good Targaryen civil war. They all end terribly. Yeah, Uvo Zod, he's great at connecting new ideas to stuff that's already can. Yeah, that's one of his greatest strengths. He's really, really good at backfilling to stuff he's already written in a way that makes it seem planned, but actually isn't. And that's the story of the genesis of Damon, the Blackfires, this whole rebellion and Bloodraven. He had places to put them in, and he wrote it in very smoothly so that a lot of people don't even realize it. They're like, Wait, Damon isn't mentioned until the third book? It's like, yeah, he's not even in the Hedge Knight when he should be. Is there a Damon Waters parallel between himself and Fagon? And I guess in a sense that they're both kind of manipulated into what they're doing and they're being prepared from a young age for a life that it doesn't seem like they had a lot of choice in, that there was a lot, there were other people making sure that their, their rebellions and their civil wars were going to happen and not in particular young Griff and Damon. We'll get to that later. Actually, the first time I heard about this idea, I think it was from Jeff or Brendan Beefish, that he had documented, or someone else had documented, about exactly when, by going back to quotes from George and looking at the publication dates about when Damon, Bloodraven, 
And that whole story came to be. And I think it's about 1999. That's when they were invented into the story. And you know that, as I said, that's such as the nature of George's creative process. He calls himself a gardener, but you could say that he writes more on inspiration than on plans, that he does not have a large outline with a point by point of thing that happens. He just sort of has a vague goal he's going towards and then tries to fill in the blanks as he arrives at each blank, which is also there's been a lot of discourse recently about how George was disappointed that Dan and Dave like went off his template and went off his plot and stuff like that. And it's like, well, it's pretty clear that from the way he talks about it and the way that he actually wrote things and from his own words that he didn't really have a like a point by point list of explicit actions characters take to get to the end point. He just sort of knows the end point and that he's writing to it. And that makes it kind of hard to to follow <laughs> because that's the way he writes. The idea that Young Griff is not a Blackfire seems to be gaining momentum. I think that's a sort of like a fandom thing that people are bored. So they're trying to come up with the idea that he's real. Probably some, I don't know, it's probably like a some YouTuber or something that came up with it. Oh yeah, thank you, Mally. A hundred in chat, 62 likes. What are you guys doing? Slam that like button. Don't you want to, don't you want me to wear a silly hat? I know you do. Yeah, Pat is driving right now and listening to this at the same time. Yeah, eyes on the road, bud. Texting while driving or YouTube chatting while driving. How dare you? Yeah, I'm sure you could find a lot of parallels between Aegon and, and Damon, especially because I, I think is still the general consensus that Aegon is a Blackfire himself. And if you're looking for characterization about Damon, that especially in the young age, Young Griff is probably your best source. They've definitely had a similar kind of, well, well, not really. Young Griff's life is more like Aegon the Four, Aegon the Fifth. But uh, nonetheless, there's not that many Targaryen princes running around in the story that you can actually look to. So Patrick James is Bran still on the throne in the end. Yeah, but I mean, I mean we're not going to turn this into a Game of Thrones, Dan and Dave versus George R. R. Martin stream. But basically, he told them a bunch of endpoints and some large like beats in between them, but not like the actual what's the right way to say this. It's, it was it doesn't seem to be a detailed outline that they got that he sort of told them where they all go and sort of how they get there, but not like how to mix it all together and the timing of everything, that kind of stuff. Plus the point that they had written beyond some of the stuff that George had later decided that he was going this way when it looked like he was going that way. Like he, he retcons a lot of stuff and he changes his mind. So it makes it difficult to, to follow it that way. Ah, Bl House Blackfire died out in the male line, not the female line. Will the sword Blackfire re reappear? It actually probably will. It's Alira Mopata seems to have it from a cut chapter that never made it into a Song of Ice and Fire proper, but it, I think it was something George read where Tyrion overhears Illyrio talking in High Valyrian, I think, about the sword and the boy or something like that. So it seems pretty likely that somehow Illyrio has acquired the sword Blackfire. But anyway, let's get back to the Daemon Waters himself. So there's a ton, a ton of history backing all this up. The, the reason Daemon's important and the reason for his rebellions are far, are varied with tons of chapters and like there's an entire big section in the world of ice and fire that is basically just about the lead up to his rebellion how it was more the logical conclusion of a whole bunch of problems rather than one person wasn't there a crown too i don't think so i don't think i don't think damon had a did he have a crown i remember he had a, a weird helmet with giant dragon wings on the side of it i don't know if he had a crown actually the main missing crown in uh, song of ice and fire 
if you want to have some fun with it, is Aegon the Conqueror's crown. It was lost in Dorne when Daron the First went down there. We'll get to Daron, but that's the main missing crown, and that's the one that could be uh, the most interesting to show up later. So we're going to start at the end of the Dance of the Dragon, sort of at the end of where House of the Dragon probably will finish. And spoiler alert, King Aegon the Third, the Dragon's Bane, the son of Rhaenyra and Daemon Targaryen. He is the oldest, his oldest, the Dragon's Bane dies and his son, Daron the First, quote unquote, the young dragon takes the throne. All the actual dragons are dead at this point. The last one died during Aegon's reign. And yeah, that, that kind of sucks. The end of the Dance of the Dragons is all of them gone. Rip in peace. But Daron, who's very young, decides that he wants to conquer anyway, with or without the dragons. He wants to complete the conquest of Dorne, which none of his predecessors could do. Like, for instance, Aegon the Conqueror himself over and over and over again flew his dragons down to Dorne trying to roast them out of the castles and trying to get them to bend the knee to him, and they just wouldn't do it. Rhaenys Targaryen herself died while she was at least shot down while doing one of these dragon drone strikes, essentially. But Daron, he's going to make his mark. He's going to do what Aegon couldn't. He's going to bring Dorne into the realm with blood and fire. But no dragons. It's going to be a bunch of guys. So he launches this gigantic invasion of Dorne, which lasts four years until he gets effectively red-weddinged by the Dornish. The parallels between the young dragon and the young wolf are pretty strong. George did that intentionally. Yeah, I agree, uh, Grey Waste Tim. I think House Martell probably does have Aegon the Conqueror's crown, and they were planning to give it to Viserys, but they may give it to young Griff, or it may end up on Daenerys's head, but they have it. I think they definitely have it. George just kind of left that one hanging. It's like, hey, that crown never came back from Dorne. Where did it go? The Martells have it. So the sheer scale of this invasion, all who participate in it, creates an entire generation of soldiers, veterans, lords, and effectively broken men who view the Dornish as their greatest enemies and hold these massive grudges against them. That this was, I guess if you want to use modern American history, Vietnam, like if the Dornish invasion is effectively the Vietnam of Westeros. It completely broke the crown and all these lords that they could not go down to the sands and completely knock over these people. It just sort of stayed with them forever. Yeah, that's true, Guilty Undertaker. Don't be called the young. If you're called the young, that's not a good thing. And it, it's, a, it's a massive clusterfuck. Uh, there's a quote here from John 1 in A Game of Thrones talking specifically about this invasion and what it did to Westeros and the people who lived in it, which is not great. Daron Targaryen was only 14 when he conquered Dorne. John said the young dragon was one of his heroes. A conquest that lasted a summer, his uncle pointed out. Your boy king lost 10,000 men taking the place and another 50 trying to hold it. Someone should have told him that war isn't a game. He took another sip of wine. Also, he said, wiping his mouth, Daron Targaryen was only 18 when he died. Or have you forgotten that part? And that's basically all you need to know about Daron's quote-unquote conquest of Dorne. It was short-lived at gigantic costs, and it was basically because Daron was vain that he wanted to do what the Conqueror couldn't. He wanted to make his mark on Westeros and decided the way to do it was to essentially slaughter Dorne until he got there. Yeah, don't do that. It's not a good idea. Not even that you couldn't even do it when they had Balerion the Black Tread. I don't know what the fuck Daron was thinking. And many Targaryen kings 
and all the ones in this particular story live in the shadow of Daron's war that, it, again, it effectively broke the psyche of the realm and all the kings who came to power that they all had to deal with the Dornish problem, which is not the I don't mean the Dornish being like the problem themselves. It's the problem that the vast majority of their lords want to finish that conquest, that they're upset that they lost. They hate the Dornish for beating them and they want vengeance. So, yeah, good luck to any king that takes power after that. This is an important side note, something to pick up on that I don't think gets discussed a lot about Damon Blackfire is that through all this from Aegon III until Aegon IV takes the throne, Viserys, who becomes Viserys II and is Aegon III's brother, is hand of the king this entire time. If you remember from Fire and Blood, he's the guy that was lost at sea and then found and effectively sold back to Aegon with the worst deal of all time where the Oaken Fist Alan Valarian bought Viserys back from a lip. So yeah, let's keep that in mind. While all this is happening, there's one hand of the king and it's a future king himself. It's Viserys II. Lord Joker says, Joe, loved your video on the prologue chapter, your favorite Song of Ice and Fire theoretical view. Hey, thanks, buddy. That is a good one, if I do say so. Well, Daron did, he didn't really rule over it. it. He spent like three years trying to, he conquered it and then basically lost it very, very quickly. But anyway, so after Daron's death, Baylor the first or Baylor the blessed comes to power as Aaron died, as Daron died without an heir and he died unmarried. So Baylor is the super pious prick who decides that what the realm needs is more faith of the seven. They don't have enough faith of the seven. They really got to double or triple down on it. Although, as Crowfoot's daughter or Amanda and I have talked about many times in the past, it's probably undersold how much Baylor was doing this, be- being guided probably by dragon dreams. At the very, at the very least, he was reading the books of prophecy and seeing the signs and was trying to avoid something. Pretty sure what he was trying to avoid was actually Damon Blackfire himself, but he just had a, a very unusual reaction to be in, being exposed to this whole realm of magic and prophecy. Yeah, Guilty Undertaker, the repeated invasions of Dorne are definitely a crusade's parallel. That's that's definitely one way to take it. Both of those, both of those examples work equally well, and George would be quite aware of both of them. So Baylor is married to his his younger sister, Dana. But as soon as he's crowned king, he has the marriage annulled by the High Septon, claiming that it was never consummated. And it's probably true. Baylor seems to probably have died a virgin. Then goes even further, and he takes his three younger sisters, Dana, Reyna, and Elena, and imprisons them in what is called the Maiden Vault. Now, it's not actually the dungeons. He's not putting them in the Black Cells or something like that. I think he just puts them in one of the towers, and they're lordly prisoners you know they they don't want for anything they're not being denied food or anything like that it's just they can't leave it's very much a a golden fetters situation you know they are they are prisoners but they're not being overtly mistreated like quite a lot of prisoners it's kind of like house arrest i guess is what you would call it in the medieval sense actually it happens today when um very powerful people get arrested and they just get essentially told to stay in their home and they can't leave it's basically that that's what happens to them it's very fucked up. Damon's, I mean, Baylor's explanation for it is that he wanted to stop his carnal thoughts about his sisters, which is just a very Targaryen thing to do. I have to lock up my sisters or I'm going to want to fuck them all. Good God, Baylor, get it together. But it's also he didn't want them having sex with anybody. 
he wanted them to not have any children for some reason. I'm guessing this is a prophecy thing again, but you know, I, I'm guessing and me and Amanda again referencing this is that he probably saw or read something about how he saw signs that led him believe that if any one of his sisters got pregnant, then that child would be like this massive problem and destroy Westeros and maybe bring about the end of the world, that kind of thing, which would kind of track with the rest of the Targaryens and how they tend to react to that sort of things. It's a running theme that every generation thinks some part of prophecy is about them. <laughs> Baylor's the normal one because he didn't want to have incest. Yeah, he's the normal one that didn't want to have incest so much he locked up his sisters, Fritzl style. Dornish Dame says, it's never mentioned, I wonder if Damon... If Daron the first had dragon dreams like his namesake a few generations later, dreams pushing him to conquer Dorne, he was just about making a name for himself. That's definitely the tension with a lot of these older Targaryen rulers. There's so little information about them, and George just kind of leaves it up in the air for you. It's like, were they being pushed by destiny and prophecy, or are they just being massive tools? And it kind of goes both ways. Um, not really sure about Daron. It's unclear what about invading Dorne would help him against the end of the world or something like that. But a lot of these guys convince themselves of insane things. So can't write it off. So I, if you think about it this way, that Damon Blackfire, if, if Baylor has some sort of idea about Damon Blackfire coming into being from one of his sisters and being the destruction of Westeros, then effectively by locking them up, Baylor makes it happen. It's the classic thing in the song of ice and fire that if you, tr if you know about prophecy and try to avoid it, make it happen that's basically the message of the hedge knight the entire impetus for that story is that daron the dreamer thinks that he's gonna die at the upcoming tourney so he tries to avoid it but by trying to avoid it he actually ends up killing Baylor breakspear who the prophecy was actually about that kind of thing is very common with george's use of prophecy so i think that kind of irony makes sense for the maiden vault and what Baylor is trying to do we're not even to being damon being alive at this point so <laughs> we got a little ways to go i'm just gonna Put this out there this is very much just like a theory kind of thing this is not for certain but i think it's highly highly likely that viserys who was handed a king for Baylor, was secretly on board with this plan because it effectively meant that he viserys himself was heir to the iron throne none of Baylor's sisters had any children daron the first is dead and Baylor is effectively asexual so he's not going to have any children he actually thinks sex is evil so who's next in line? Viserys. Viserys, who's been waiting all this time, he's next up to be king. And he's been ruling as king for quite a long time at this point, or as, or as hand of the king, basically. And Viserys himself has children. He has three children, Aegon, Aemon, and Nerys. They all become important very quickly. It's said in the text that Viserys was very much against the idea of the main vault, but the reason he's against it may not be what you assume it to be, because it's I, if I had to guess, thinking about Viserys and the way he operated in the story, he, I don't think his problem with the Maiden Vault was that Baylor was locking up these three sisters. I think the problem is that he was preventing them from marry, from marrying, and that Viserys quite clearly would have liked his sons Aemon and Aegon to marry those two, to marry Dana and probably Reyna, in order to join the lines and effectively make Viserys' line the royal line going forwards. The easiest way for Viserys to end up on the Iron Throne is either for his sons to marry daughters or for all the male line in or for the male line from Aegon to die out. Either way, Viserys is getting what he wants. He's ending up on the Iron Throne 
either by Baylor and Daron not, not having children or, or by one of the three daughters from the main vault marrying Aegon or Aemon. It all works in his favor. So there's a, there's a lot of very Tywin-esque kind of scheming that's behind Viserys II. And you just sort of read this stuff and he's going through the back of your head. It's like, I know I've seen this plot before. I know characters like this. This is this seems very much like Viserys is a is a highly skilled political schemer. Those kind of characters in George's world commonly do this kind of shit. Well, they'll say it's the horrible thing, but why they think it's horrible is very, very different. Oh, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, he's probably just celibate rather than asexual. Good call. Got that one wrong. So what ends up happening here is toward the ends of Baylor's life, he basically almost killed himself several times by fasting. When bad things would happen, Baylor's move was to fast and pray. That was his thing. And as things went wronger throughout his reign, his fastings got longer. And yeah, the one that really sets him off is Dana the Defiant, his, the oldest, his oldest sister. Dana is specifically mentioned to be the one that thinks the Maiden Vault thing is the most bullshit. That she's like constantly trying to escape, that she's trying to build support for her and her sisters to be released, which fair enough. I mean, that whole situation is just god awful. Dana wants out and she wants out today. So what ends up happening is towards the end of what ends up being Baylor's life, she somehow evades her captivity or more likely someone comes into the main vault and she ends up getting pregnant. This is the exact thing Baylor's trying to prevent. He doesn't want this to happen, and it happens anyway. The quote here, the one I started at the beginning, is obviously this child is Damon Waters. Damon was the name Dana gave this child. For Prince Damon had been the wonder and terror of his age, and in later days, that was seen as a warning of what the boy would become. Dana also refused to name the boy's father, correctly assuming that Baylor might have had them killed or thrown in the back cells for breaking into the maiden vault or using the Faith of the Seven in some way against them. And I think, much like I was talking about earlier, how Damon's early entrance in the story is that he's a massive threat to the Targaryens and that he's a traitor. George does the same thing here. He links Damon being born explicitly with the death of Baylor. After Baylor finds out, he does a 40-day fast, praying to the Seven about, oh no, oh no, 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 everything's going wrong. How can this happen? I did everything to prevent it, and it's going to happen anyway. And on day 41, he collapses and ends up dying. Although there definitely is a suggestion in the text that Viserys II, well, Viserys at the time, had uh, Baylor killed, maybe poisoned, and in order to ascend the Iron Throne at this point. Because there's actually kind of a, this is something Patrick Doherty talked about in an email he sent to me, which is kind of a good point. While there's quite a, there's no support for Dana being an heir to the Iron Throne at this point, it has been very close in the past that the son of a daughter could ascend to the Iron Throne. Damon being born, being Dana's daughter, does open up the possibility that he's going to, that he could challenge for the Iron Throne if there was a great council, that he might have quite a good cause for it. Instead, Baylor drops dead and Viserys takes control of the throne, Viserys II, and instead, all of a sudden, the, the line of succession instantly swaps to his son, Aegon later known as Aegon the Unworthy. <laughs> put your sister in a vault, she's going to get pregnant. Yeah, I mean, don't put your don't put sisters or anybody in vaults. Just don't do it. That's my advice. If the opportunity comes up, just say no. Say no to vaults. That would actually be, <laughs> that'd be like a funny t-shirt. Say no to vaults. Say no to maiden vaults. Well, that's kind of creepy. I don't know. 
Actually, now that I think about it, there are maiden vaults in Dying of the Light. Why is George, stop writing about maiden vaults. So yeah, from the moment Damon is born, his existence is a problem. It's a problem for, in particular, Viserys and Aegon after him. <laughs> Mallory's on it. Say no to maiden vaults. So as I said, falling to death of Baylor, Viserys II, after a lifetime of work, is handed to the king for three kings at this point, ascends to the throne, making his son Aegon the crown prince. And then it becomes known that actually Damon's birth is not a problem. You know why? His father is Aegon. Crown Prince Aegon is the one who snuck into the maiden vault and hooked up with Dana. You think this would be a good thing, right? Like this kind of just solves all the problems. Aegon and Dana, well, that would effectively join their claims. Everything's hunky-dory. Well, not really. This is actually just, this, exasperate, this exacerbates the problem, as George is wont to do with his drama. Aegon himself, he's actually married at this point, and he's married to his sister, Neris. And to add even more to the drama, as George, again, is wont to do, it was a forced marriage by their father. And there's another person who is, so neither of them want it. They don't like each other. They don't want to be married. But there's, then there's one person who's also exceptionally upset about their marriage, their brother, Aemon the, Aemon the Dragon Knight, who Maester Aemon is named for and uh, who eventually becomes Lord Commander of the Kingsguard for his brother, who he hates. It's just like, it's a big powder keg that George wrote here. He wanted to make sure that nothing would go right. And he did it expertly. Every time you think like, well, this will work out, he introduces another detail that tells you, no, everything's fucked. That's the, that's the world that Damon Waters is born into. Uh, the quote here is, she loved Eamon best of her brothers for he knew how to make her laugh. And he had something of the same piety she possessed while Aegon did not. She loved the seven as dearly as she loved her brother, if not more so, and might have been a septa if her lord father had allowed it. But he did not, and Viserys instead wed her to his son Aegon in 153 AC with King Aegon III's blessing. The singers say Aemon and Nerys both wept during the ceremony, though histories tell us Aemon quarreled with Aegon at the wedding feast, and that Nerys wept during the bedding rather than the wedding. It's also right after the wedding that Aemon joined and goes and joins the king's guard the cersei jamie parallels here are exceptionally strong if you know nothing else about Aemon and Nerys, it's if you just know jamie and cersei as the comparison that probably tells you that it's probably likely they kept they continued hooking up throughout the rest of their lives that is absolutely what happened with jamie and cersei Sibling incest from the queen and or the future queen and her king's guard brother. I mean, the parallels are just they're blatant. So there's definitely an idea here. <laughs> get in the vault. Oh my god, don't get in any vaults. Don't go into the vaults. In case Jordan. Hey Joe, glad you're back finally. Glad to be back too. So we also have another problem here. The woman that Aegon wants is not Nerys, but actually Dana, or at least at the moment he wants Dana, who he can't have. And Nerys wants Aemon who she can't have, as she is now married to her brother, the wrong brother, and her other brother, the one she loves, joined the Kingsguard. So everything's just a big clusterfuck. Everything's going wrong. So maybe Aegon could have multiple wives. This is a Targaryen thing that has happened in the past. Nope. The High Septon and his father say no. But during Baylor's during Baylor's reign, it's really not going to happen with the super pious, essentially Septon king as he was. So Aegon, Aemon, Nerys, and Dana are all stuck. They they can't, none of them can be with each other. And Daemon is the physical living embodiment 
of this major problem and drama within the royal family. Wherever he goes, whatever he does, he points out to everyone involved that he that they are in a massive pickle. And what you don't want with a royal family is a giant pickle about succession and people married to each other that hate each other and secret arrangements. Damon is all those things wrapped up into one person. Aegon IV did want many women, but it's it seems like Dana was the one he was after, at least at first. It may have been later that his indiscretions were being from being denied Dana. Although it seems like he was just kind of all about having sex all the time anyway. So, you know, maybe not. But there, the connection between him and Dana is one of the first things we learn about Aegon and her. And to make it matters, to make matters worse, Damon is, by all accounts, just the best. He is awesome. He's like the best of Targaryens. If you wanted to make like a template of what the Targaryens, what the best they could be, by, by all accounts, Damon is that person. And not only that, he's raised at court as a prince. He's not a bastard being pushed off to one side or sent to some far-off castle to be fostered. He's in the Red Keep. He's at court. He knows everybody, and everybody knows him. And he excels especially at arms. Uh, he gets training from Quentin Ball, otherwise known as Fireball, which will become important later, the master of arms for the Red Keep. Very similar in construction probably to Edric Storm, but Edric is not allowed anywhere near the Red Keep, whereas Damon is. He's the preferred son to Aegon, honestly, and the preferred prince to quite a lot of the people at court that if they if they had their choice, they were like, yeah, Damon seems like he'd probably be a good king, especially with his warrior king vibes he's giving off from a young age. Was it a booty call? I don't know. I don't think it was. Certainly, Aegon's affection for Damon does not wane like it does for his other. So we don't know a lot about Damon's young life, except to say, again, that just everyone thought he was the bee's knees. He was the best of all things. And he's actually the oldest son to Aegon as his true-born heir, Daron II, wouldn't be, wouldn't be born until a few years later. So the very first kid for Aegon is Daemon, which explains kind of a lot about stuff that happens later, particularly on his deathbed. And we get a count from Bran in A Dance with Dragons when he's talking to Bloodraven that, according to Bloodraven, there was a brother that he loved and a brother that he hated. Aziz and I did a stream about this, talking about Bloodraven. And we tried to essentially solve the idea of who is he talking about? Because he has, Bloodraven had three important brothers in his life. He had Damon Waters, his half-brother, Agor Rivers, his half-brother, and King Daron II, his half-brother. But there's only two mentioned. So which one fits into which? From all accounts and from what we know about Bloodraven later in life and the things that he did, it's hard to tell which one fits. He definitely hated Agor Rivers, but how much did he hate Damon and did he love Daron? Me and Aziz sort of landed on the idea that the brother that Bloodraven loved was actually Damon and that the brother that he hated was Agor Rivers. Although you could definitely make the case that the uh, enthusiasm that Bloodraven had for killing Blackfires would make Damon the brother he hated and Daron the brother that he loved. I agree with kind of what Jay Moray Eel is saying in the chat that Damon feels the gurmiest, that Damon being the brother that Bloodraven loves the most and the one that he has to kill is definitely the most tragic answer. So if you're looking for tragedy, that's the one I would go for. But yeah, not much is really known about, about what Damon and Bloodraven really thought of each other, other than the fact that they were on other sides, other sides of the war. But that doesn't mean they didn't love each other. There's definitely stories all throughout history of 
brothers ending up on opposite sides of battle lines and because their ideologies clash. That kind of stuff does happen. Wait, Daron was older than Damon? Hang on a second. Is that really true? Did I just get that one really wrong? I'm going to feel like an idiot if I got that wrong. I might be an idiot. Oh, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry about that. I got that wrong. Scratch that. I might remove that from when I upload this. I guess I missed that one. Let me check their birth dates. Yeah, you're right. Oh, wait, no. Born 153. Yep, yeah, I'm sorry. Daron's the oldest one. My bad. For, forget all that big dumb dumb over here. When you try and slam a bunch of information in your head really fast, sometimes you get it wrong. Yep. Sorry about that. Yeah, that's how it goes. So anyway, one important thing that is to keep in mind here is that Damon has somebody he's in love with too, especially from a young age. And that is Daron's younger sister, Daenerys, the very same Daenerys that ends up marrying into Dor. I wonder if that means something for A Song of Ice and Fire, if that will come up somehow. I don't know. A Daenerys marrying into Dorne and a Dornish prince. Curious. That's who he wants. He wants Daenerys, and apparently the feeling is mutual. But despite this obvious affection, Daemon is instead betrothed to uh, Rohane of Tyrosh. The idea being that as king, Aegon IV was pretty much all about selling off things for alliances and, and honestly money. And effectively, he wanted an an alliance with Tyrosh in order to secure trade routes. And also they probably just paid him for Damon. I'm guessing that's what happened, but it was, it was basically a real, a lucrative relationship. So he offers up Damon to marry her and that effectively seals the betrothed. They don't actually marry for a bit. So, but there's a side effect to this betrothal between Damon and Rohan of Tyrosh. And that is that Aegon the fourth, his father said to him, you know what? Don't worry about it, but you know why you're so cool. I'll let you have multiple wives. That's presented as a rumor, but it probably checks out with the kind of bullshit that Aegon was up to and his desires and the sort of things he was up to in his general life that he doted on Damon, that he basically wished Damon and Daron would swap places. He wanted Damon as his real son and he wanted Daron to be the bastard. So yeah, we get no real hints about Damon being like a cruel person or being a bully. Like we get about Arian Brightflame. He just kind of sort of seems like he's a typical Westerosi highborn jock sort of character. Now he plays at being a warrior. He goes to tourneys. He practices with the sword all the time. He actually wins at tourneys, although that, that doesn't always mean everything. We see definitely in the Mystery Knight that who wins at tourneys is not always skill-based, to say the least. And basically, everyone likes Damon. Damon's a pretty cool guy. Nobody has any problems with them. Even Daron, like Daron and Damon, as far as like just being half siblings, got along. They they didn't really have personal gripes like that we saw described between the original Damon Targaryen and the king at the time, Viserys the First. Where it's well documented the issues they had. There aren't really there doesn't really seem to be like a lot of personal problems between them, other than the the problems that Aegon created. Isn't there a bunch of stuff about how Daron was this kind of a drip, uncharismatic with an alcohol punch? He was just kind of Daron as king is just kind of like a, a a good manager. He's not doing anything exciting. He's not holding a lot of parties. He's just sort of a dutiful king. He's doing his job well, and that's sort of that's sort of his personality. He's dutiful in a way that Aegon never was. It's also, and he seems very similar in sort of reputation that we hear about Rhaegar. Also, probably from what we see in the Hedge Knight, Baylor Breakspear has a similar kind of reputation that he's an impressive prince, that people like him, that they gravitate towards him. 
It's also said he's the spitting image of Aegon the Conqueror. I guess somebody made some portraits of Aegon. They held them next to Damon and said, oh my God, you look just like him, which is like, not like they have photography. So who actually really knows? Um, he's described as being clean shaven. He has long flowing hair, rippling muscles, abs like a, like a, abs like a, a shield, you know? He's the most Targ looking Targ you can imagine. He is the prototypical Targaryen. Although this is one thing I noticed while I was uh, reading about him before we went live on the stream, before we had all the technical problems, is that we never really get a sense of Damon being smart. Typically, George marks the Targaryens and characters who are actually book smart and clever. He, he calls them bookish or he describes them being libraries a lot or them being involved in plots and that kind of stuff. And that doesn't, that's not really a description of Damon, of Damon Blackfire. All of his process, all of his positive traits are kind of the sort of stuff that you get told about Duncan the Tall. It's that he's very likable. People gravitate towards him. He has physical strength, uh, physical prowess. He has good looks and that he has a lot of abilities with the sword and the lance. And it's quite possible that that Damon is essentially just kind of like sort of like a himbo character, that he's not particularly clever, that he's not particularly smart, but sometimes those guys are very, very popular. That's sort of, again, that's the sort of thing we get with Dunk, where he is not the most clever guy out there, but he goes pretty high on that one. Yeah, go back and read it. You will not find descriptions of Damon being a, a super smart guy. Yeah, kind of like Bobby, like Bobby B. Robert Baratheon. I think it's weird. Where father and son are both like different versions of Robert, it sounds like. Although there's definitely not a sense that Damon has any of the, what's the right word for it? Lack of self-control from Aegon. There's no sense that he goes out drinking and partying and womanizing all the time. Seems more like Dunk. He seems like, well, actually Dunk does do those things. So I don't, yeah, I don't think he's particularly clever. It's definitely not hinted at that he is. There's not in the same way that you hear about Bloodraven or even Daron. Daron gets quite a bit of characterization about his political savvy and how clever he is and being able to navigate diplomacy and Damon's just kind of running around winning tourneys and being cool those are not the same skills what age did Damon have his sons very young he he died I think at 26 and I think he already had like seven children so after he got married to Rohan of Tyrosh they spent all their time banging they did all the sex yeah nine kids and lived through it Damon died very young that's actually one of those things that I noticed when I was going through this, I was like, all this happened while these guys were pretty young. Damon dies in his mid to late 20s. Bloodraven is in his early 20s when all this happens. So is Agor Rivers. This is very much a young man's war that happens. Let me double check the old wiki here. Yeah, Damon died, born 170, died 196. Yeah, he died at 26. And he had just so many children so fast. When he wasn't at the turning ground, when he wasn't practicing with one sword, he was practicing with the other. Sorry about that. So yeah, I, th I think that's an important part of understanding Damon's character, that he's very, he and Daron are very much seen as opposite kinds of people. That while Daron is the the king who is, he, it seems like most people think that Daron sh should be the hand of the king and that they want Damon to be the actual king, to be the figurehead, the guy at the head of the army. And they want actually Daron to be running the realm while Damon's off being handsome and winning battles and that kind of stuff. Didn't his older sons die in the war? Yes, they did. We're not going to get to Red Grass Field in this stream, any actual rebellion itself. We're just, we're focusing on his backstory. So, but we will, we will get there in the future. Don't you worry about it. So Damon's big moment in his young life is at a squire's tourney that Aegon threw. I believe 
I believe that Damon was 12 when this happened. If you're looking for a parallel in Song of Ice and Fire, the one you can think of is the tourney that Bronze Yon Royce threw for Harry the Heir. The one where it was a squire's tourney, but everyone that showed up knew that they were supposed to lose to Harry. And it seems like the same thing happened here with Damon. Damon wins, Damon wins the squire's tourney. And when he does, likely as expected and set up, Aegon decides it's time to give his son some fabulous prizes. And ones that absolutely piss off just about everybody, including Daron. The first prize, oh, prize number one, is that Aegon is publicly acknowledging Damon as his natural born son. He is an acknowledged bastard, like legally at this point. It's it's no longer like up in the air, it's no longer rumor. He's saying Damon's mine. I had sex with Dana. She's, you know, this is my kid. That's a big deal. That is not something that, as far as I can recall, happened anywhere else in the Targaryen dynasty up to this point. Most of the time when kings have bastards, they try really, really hard to deny them or disprove them. There's actually a thing during one of the great councils where Jaehaerys had to fend off accusations of him having multiple bastards. And that's Jaehaerys the conciliator. Yeah, the sound is working. So yeah, that, that's a really big deal. And when we're if we're talking about a, a comparative example within A Song of Ice and Fire proper, Robert Baratheon has multiple bastards in Mia Stone and Edric Storm, the ones that he knows about. And they are not allowed anywhere near the Red Keep. Everyone knows that Edric Storm is Robert's bastard, but he doesn't pretend that he's, his, you know, he's not raising him. He's not going on hunts together. Robert's not throwing tourneys for Edric or anything like that. He is off to the side. This is a very different thing that Aegon is doing here and something pretty far out of the norm. But nope, Aegon going against the grain says definitely Daemon is mine. He is Daemon Waters, son of the king. The second thing that, uh, that Daemon does, I mean that Aegon does for Daemon, is he gives him a bunch of land. And he gives him money and says, it's in the Blackwater Rush, so near King's Landing, says, you're a lord. So you can go ahead and you have my leave to go build a castle. Which I found out was actually like a thing that you couldn't just do. A lot of the times, new castles had to be approved by the king in order to do it. Didn't matter if you had the money, you also had to go ask, especially if you were a new lord, that kind of thing. Most lords, when they became it, when they were upjumped, they stole the land or the castle or the keep from somebody else that's dead now. No, Damon's allowed to go build a new castle if he wants it. That's also a very big deal because this effectively makes Damon a he's he's being allowed to make his own house. He's going to be separate from the main Targaryen sort of. It's sort of like it's a cadet house, basically, is what he's going to be allowed to make like a bastard cadet house. But what what is he going to name himself? He's Damon Waters. He that's not you can't really name yourself Waters. So he needs a cool name. Don't worry. Daddy Aegon has another has another gift for him. He goes ahead. He knights Damon and then gives him the Sword of Kings, the Valyrian Seal Sword, Blackfire. And this is effectively the same as when Robert, as when Rhaegar went and gave the Blue Roses to Lyanna. Basically, all across the realm, the smiles died. Everyone was like, what the fuck are you doing? What, why are you giving your Sword of Kings to Damon? Like, this is, this is going to go to Daron. It's his birthright. And Damon goes on to take the name Blackfire, the name of the sword, as his house. He's effectively, he's no longer Daemon Waters and he's not Daemon Targaryen, he's Daemon of House Blackfire. They are now a, a cadet branch of the Targaryens at this point. All right, so 
everyone freaks the fuck out. They're wondering if Daron is now disinherited. They're wondering if this means that Damon is now the heir to the Iron Throne. What the fuck is Aegon doing? What is he up to? So there's a few things to unpack. And some of you guys are asking about it in the chat. And we're going to go ahead. We're going to go through this whole thing right now. So why does why do people think that Aegon is unhappy with Daron and wants to disinherit him? And why does he want Daemon instead? Well, go back to what I said about the whole intermarriage clusterfuck. Apparently, Daenerys and Aegon did not have that much sex. And they don't really enjoy each other. And Aegon suspects that Daron is not actually his son, but instead Aemon's. He thinks he thinks Aemon and Neris are running around behind his back, hooking up all over the place like Jamie and Cersei later do, and that he that the trueborn sons, the trueborn children from Neris are not his own. So that's that's problem one. He deeply suspects this, as all throughout Aegon the Fourth's life, even up to his dying days, more or less thinks this, although he gets a lot louder after Aemon dies. Aemon the Dragonite dies at one point, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. And at that point, Aegon's is just kind of like off the rails. He's telling anyone who wants to listen, you know, that he doesn't really think Daron's his son. He thinks uh, Daron's kind of a, he's a bad seed. He can't be his. Look at Daemon. Daemon's awesome. And that's sort of, he sort of uses Daemon as a carrot and a stick sort of thing on Daron. When Daron goes against him, when he wants to make decisions or he tries to talk him out of Aegon's many, 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 many bad decisions, his common threat is like, fuck off, Daron. You keep this up. I'm going to legitimize Daemon and take away your, your birthright. That, that is a really common theme between the two of them. And this is another problem about Aegon IV as a king. He is so blatantly corrupt. He is so blatantly making terrible, bad decisions all the time that Daron, who, as I said, ends up being a relatively good steward of the throne, effectively is trying him and He's running around behind his back trying to put out all the fires that Aegon is making. Whereas Daemon is just kind of like going with the flow. He's going to tourneys. He's beating people with, beating people up with his sword. He doesn't give a shit what Aegon's doing. And he's handsome in ways that Daron is not. He's strong in ways that Daron is not. So he definitely suspects there's that Daron is not only a bastard, but he just doesn't like the kid. So, or the man at this point. He's, a, he's pretty grown up at the point all this is happening. So. He constantly is alluding to it, but he never goes through with it. He does not go through with the, the threats and does not actually disinherit, does, does not disinherit Daron at any point in his life. But it's, it's near constant. So when Damon is given the sword, there's a, there's a definite thought within the people watching that maybe this is like official. Now. Maybe this is like Aegon's way of saying, Fuck Daron, Damon's the guy. And one thing that they argued about quite a lot, and this is why I, I talked earlier about Daron's prom, problems with uh, Daron the first problems with Dorne. Actually, Baylor had a lot of problems with Dorne as well. Aegon wanted to continue the wars. He wanted to load up the armies of the six kingdoms and invade Dorne and absolutely fuck them up. He wanted to complete the conquest that nobody else could. He even went so far, he built a massive navy, this gigantic fleet that he sailed down to Dorne, and then it got destroyed on the way there. And they lost tons of, tons of soldiers, tons of ships. He even had this thing constructed called like an iron dragon, I think it was called. It was essentially like he tried to build a wildfire flamethrower, which sounds badass. 
Unfortunately, the very first one exploded and burned down a quarter of the of the of the the Kingswood, I think it was. So the one noticeably pushing for peace every time and telling Aegon, don't do this, don't invade Dorne, you're gonna waste the lives of all these people. It's a terrible idea, you're not gonna win, is Daron. Daron's the one trying to talk him out of it. And that ends up being an important part of the Blackfire Rebellion to come, which we'll talk about in a much more in a future stream. But basically, a lot of the support around Damon versus Daron during the rebellion itself comes down to support or hatred of Dorne. That Daron, through most of his father's life and when he becomes king, his number one priority is, well, he does continue fighting against Dorne somewhat, but uh, he effectively ends the war and not only that, brings them into the realm. Uh, he is more conciliator character. He's more a politician, a more diplomat. And that's how he ends up doing the thing no other Targaryen could before them. But he did it in a way that the Lords of Westeros don't like. They like wars. They like plundering. They like, you know, putting a sword in their hands and go killing a lot of people. It's, it's, not, it's not the way they wanted it to happen. They liked having a constant enemy. Somebody that, that when they had their juices flowing, they could go raid or go fight or something like that. We see that a lot from Ari's Oakheart in A Feast for Crows, that he is so uncomfortable with being in Dorne and with being with Arianne because it's basically a birthright at this point for Reacher lords and Marcher lords and Stormlanders that they will fight against the war with the Dornish at some point in their lifetime. And that's how you prove like their manhood, that kind of thing. Daron thinks these are bad things and actually you should probably not try to kill them to just to do all the terrible things that these lords do. And Damon is definitely the opposite of that. He is the guy that is all about that life. He's never gone to war with Dorne before, but it's being a warrior sort of figure himself. It's assumed that he would be in favor of it in a way that Daron never would. So that is one of the very big problems between Daron and Aegon. And that's one of the reasons that when Blackfire is given away, people are like, holy shit, this is, this is massive. This is a change in inheritance. This is a change in the future, that kind of thing. Yeah, Michael Hall, the fathers killed Dornish and their father's fathers killed Dornish. It goes all the way back. It's thousands of years of a conflict that they don't want to end. It's sort of like asking somebody from the Western lands from the north of, do you want to join a kingdom with the Ironborn? The answer is no. They would say, fuck the Ironborn. We want nothing to do with them. It's a historical enemy that they've built an identity around fighting. Honestly, kind of like the French and the English or the English and everybody, everybody in the English. So... And this is uh, more, we get an explanation of logic here about why people think that Damon's a better ruler than Daron. This also uh, comes up quite a bit. This is obviously from later in his life, but this is Sir Eustace Osgray talking with, he doesn't realize at the time, Prince Aegon about why people like Damon. Why, lad? You ask me why? Because Damon was the better man. The old king saw it too. He gave the sword to Damon. Blackfire, the sword of Aegon the Conqueror, the blade that every Targaryen king had wielded since the conquest. He put that sword in Damon's hand the day he knighted him, a boy of twelve. My father says that because Damon was a swordsman and Daron never was, said Egg. Why give a horse to a man who cannot ride? The sword was not the kingdom, he says. The old knight's hand jerked so hard that the wine spilled from his silver cup. Your father is an utter fool. Your father is a fool. Kind of funny he's calling Prince Makar a fool. But that's basically the argument here is a lot of people that think that Aegon was actually legitimizing Daemon, especially in universe, 
are doing it without real knowledge of Aegon as a person and his relationship to all these all the different people in the royal family. And the reason for this is that um, Aegon is well known for giving away things. He's well known for being very flippant with artifacts of the royal family, rights, like land, that kind of thing. It's, it's almost constant if you go back and read his history. He's just kind of a shithead about this stuff. For instance, he inflames the war between the Brackens and the Blackwoods because he takes the hills that are sometimes known as Missy's Teats and Barb's, Barb's Teats, I think that's it. The hills that sit between the, Bla- the Blackwood and the Blackwood lands, the Blackwood and the Bracken lands, and gives them to the side of the woman he's currently sleeping with. He just sort of does it for fun. Another one is in the Mystery Night. A big part of that plot is that Lord Butterwell has a dragon egg that he's planning to give to one of Damon Blackfire's descendants. And it ends up being largely about trying to retrieve the dragon egg, especially for Bloodraven. Well, why does Butterwell have a dragon egg? Because Aegon gave it to him, Aegon IV, because he wanted to sleep with Butterwell's three daughters. So he gave him a goddamn dragon egg. Remember previously in Fire and Blood that, what's her name? That Alyssa Farman stole some dragon eggs from Dragonstone. And Jaehaerys the Conciliator, the guy who solves problems, is so mad and so upset about it that he's like, we're going to war against all of Essos. Fuck it. Those dragon eggs cannot leave our, our control. They cannot go anywhere. We need these things. These are the most important resource we have. And Aegon's like, I would like to sleep with your daughters. Would you like an egg? That's that's the level of flippancy that Aegon the Fourth has with everything. So if you're talking about the idea that it's probably what Egg is saying here and what by extension Prince Makar is saying is probably pretty close to true. That that Aegon was not intending to say, oh, by the way, this means that Daron is that that, that Damon is now my heir and Daron is not. He could have done that with his words. He probably honestly gave Damon a sword because Daron never was going to use it, that he didn't think that much of it, that he didn't care about the historical significance of the sword because that's not the kind of person he was. Damon's a great warrior. Here, have a sword. That kind of thing. Yeah, would you like a egg in these trying times? That's Aegon the Fourth. Danny DeVito from, <laughs> from It's Always Sunny. That's Aegon the Fourth. Actually, to a T. Yeah, guilty undertaker. That's basically it. That's that's how much Aegon does not care about these royal artifacts, and how much he does. He did, it's near constant. I said that I already said this. I'm going over it again. But like the amount of things that Aegon sells, the amount of stupid decisions he makes for dumb, impulsive reasons is overwhelming. So I think the idea that there's a lot of intentionality behind this is I, I agree here with Makar and Egg that the sword was not the kingdom that he was not giving away the seven kingdoms to Damon by giving him a sword. He just, he may have wanted to at some point, but he never actually goes through with it. Also, I think it's important here to talk about the idea that the sword is the kingdom. Where does this even come from? Why do people think Blackfire is the sign of the uh, royal family? Why, why is this a thing? Well, the answer is, as all things, the sons of the dragon. This goes back to Aenys and Maegor. So, after Aegon the Conqueror dies, Aenys ascends to the Iron Throne as the firstborn son of Aegon, rather instead of Maegor. Visenya and Maegor are particularly upset about this, and from Visenya's perspective, she makes the argument that even though Aenys was born first, her son should be first in line for the Iron Throne, the reason being that she's older than Rhaenys. 
and that she's older than Aegon. She's the oldest sibling. So why does the, if all of them are married to each other, then why does the primogeniture fall to Rhaenys' son, even though he was born first? Because primogeniture is not about who was born first. It's about where you fall in the family tree. Her argument is that hers is the first, therefore it should go to her. Obviously, Aegon and Rhaenys disagreed, and Aegon could have made Maegor his heir at any time, but he instead gave the uh, crown to Aenys. That was his heir. Although, Visenya also makes the argument that that was incorrectly done because Aegon liked liked Rhaenys far more than Visenya. So therefore, there's prejudice against Maegor. Good boy Maegor, who would never do anything wrong. And he's the one that even ends up with uh, Balerion the Black Dread. So doesn't that mean something? Basically, what happens is after Aegon's death, Aenys knows that Maegor's a problem, that he's going to want to probably overthrow him at some point. So he decides to do what is called Maegor appeasement. He, Aenys actually has Blackfire, and he gives it to Maegor as a gift to essentially say, like, kind of like a an ironborn salt and rock king sort of thing. He's saying. You know, I'm king, but you're my general. We're going to do this together. We're, we're going to be partners. So here, have Blackfire. I'm not a swordsman anyway. You'll actually use it. Can't we be best friends? That, that was actually the reason that Aenys gave it away. So the idea that it's the sign of the Targaryen dynasty is almost instantly disproven by Aenys. He doesn't think the, the crown is the, is the sword. So why, why do people get that impression? Why do they think that? Because Visenya says that after Maegor is given the sword and after A's death, Visenya starts going around and saying that, look, he has the sword of my brother. He has Balerion the Black Dread, too. He's the true heir of Aegon, along with the fact that I'm the oldest sibling. So all of these things, all the trappings of power means that Maegor is the king. And that's really all it comes from. And it's not even remotely true. Like, people do not support Maegor because he has a sword. <laughs> they support Maegor because he is Balerion and because he killed Aenys' children. And he fought a civil war to take the Iron Throne himself. He won it by conquest. So it's very much a flawed idea that the sword is the kingdom. And it's, it's basically just a PR stunt that was done by Visenya, which had become believed afterwards. That's not what it means. The sword is not the kingdom, obviously, especially because the Valyrian steel swords were common. They had tons of them. They would have had a lot more back in Valyria, and they even had two of them. They had Dark Sister. It was basically that Visenya was looking for any reason to make the case that Maegor should have been king instead of Aenys. And this is the one she decided on because that's the advantage that she had. Yeah, they support Maegor because he scared the crap out of him. He also killed a lot of people. He's a He was a violent psychopath. That was... That's why he took the throne. It wasn't because of any of this kind of stuff. And then once he had the throne, he and Visenya constantly repeated the idea that, look, Balerion, sword, I have Aegon's crown. I have all the things that Aegon owned. Therefore, I'm the true heir. Meanwhile, Aegon's opinion on the matter was actually Aenys is the heir. So fuck off, Maegor. So yeah, that, that historical example really just undercuts the idea that the sword is the kingdom. It really never has been. And it's only recently become important for one really, really big reason. And the reason being that the dragons are dead. At this point in Westeros, there are no dragons left. Balerion is dead. Even the small ones, the last dragon died during Aegon III's 
during Aegon III's uh, reign, and they're gone. So the actual sign of Targaryen power, the ability to get on a dragon and roast your home, is missing. So they're kind of scrambling for something else to, to hang their hats on for what is the symbol of Targaryen power. And they're like, well, we don't have Aegon's crown anymore. That thing was lost in Dorne by Daron. So what do we got? We got Dark Sister and we got Blackfire. All right, I guess Blackfire is the symbol of the kingdom, I guess. It's, it's really tenuous. And it's, again, the same thing here that Visenya did for Magor. Daemon makes the claim the sword makes him the king because he has the sword. That's the reason for it. But as you can see from the understanding of Daron and Makar and Egg and the side of the Targaryen loyalists, they're like, why would that mean you're the king? Surely the, the fact that Daron is the oldest son and that he's that was never legitimized make him king. It's this is basically just PR bouncing back and forth. So I find that like the, the least the least like convincing part of the Daemon argument. The sword does not make the king, obviously not. There's no reason to think that was true. It's like, is Rob Stark any less the king in the north because he doesn't have ice? No. Why would that be true? Is Tywin Lannister not the lord of the Westerlands because he is now bright? If somebody else shows up with Bright Wars, he, are they now the lords of Castle Rock? No. Why would that be true? It's a sword. All marketing, all PR. This is all just spin being done by each side to, to um, say why, that, why they are the true heirs, why you should support them. So I think the long and the short of it is did Aegon intend the sword in order to mark Daemon as the true heir to the Iron Throne? No, I don't think that's what he was doing. Even when he, on his deathbed, later legitimizes all of his bastards, he doesn't do that at the same time say, by the way, Daemon, Daron is not legitimate. Daron's still the legitimate heir, no matter what his uh, dying declaration is. So, yeah, Daemon needs an argument. And his side needs an argument, so this is the one they chose. <laughs> Guilty Undertaker. <laughs> Mad, lecherous kings hanging out at tourneys and giving out swords is no basis for a system of government. Exactly. Exactly. Actually, this would be a fun one for uh, learned hands to do. Maybe I should, maybe I'll do that with them at some point. Do like an episode about, we can just expand this and talk about like the laws behind it, inheritance and all that other kind of stuff. <laughs> That's right, Aaron. If someone shows up at Bright War, they are not only not the Lord of the Western Lands, they are probably not even among the living by the next day. Accurate. It does, the sword does not confer rights, inheritance does. Exactly right. I kill Johnny. Same kind of PR spin for Young Griff against Danny. Absolutely right. That is going to be a major part of Young Griff's landing in Westeros, that he's going to say he is the true heir because Illyrio probably gave him Blackfire. They may have the um, Aegon the Crown's, Aegon the Conqueror's crown from Dorne. I, I surmise in the past that Varys may have actually collected Rhaegar's armor that Aegon may wear his supposed father's armor just to use the trappings of power to make the case. So PR spin is not inheritance, unfortunately. So we're kind of, we're not, we'll do another stream in the future talking about exactly the, the explicit run up to the Blackfire rebellions. But I think this is like a pretty good backstop for who is Damon Waters? Why is he important? How did he become Damon Blackfire himself? And like, what problems is George exploited to create the drama to create the Civil War? I got a bunch of questions here I wanted to go over from Twitter and email and from Patreon. And also, you guys, throw them out in the chat. Just at me, bro. Anything I missed, anything I, I didn't see while I was talking, just at me and throw out some questions. We're going to finish the stream with just answering everything we can. So the first one was from Grey Waste Tim on Patreon. What he said is, we know Damon was given the sword Blackfire by Aegon the Unworthy. Do you think Aegon the Fourth also gave Dark Sister Bloodraven 
or was that given to him by Daron the Second? Either way, I see B.W. getting Dark Sister. Oh, he means Blood Raven getting Dark Sister as another factor in his and Bitter Steel's rivalry. So, if I remember right, Dark Sister was given to Blood Raven by Aegon the Fourth. So, one thing to remember is that who the previous owner of Dark Sister was. It's Aemon the Dragon Knight. That's who owned Dark Sister. And Aegon did not like his brother. He was constantly trying to get him killed. He was not ha- he was not upset when uh, Aemon eventually died. And it's it's if you read back the Aegon's actions, he actively put people up to making accusations against Nerys and Aemon because he didn't feel he could do them on his own. So when he gets Dark Sister back, who he gives it out to is going to be a very impulsive and probably a dickish decision in order to try to low-key embarrass Aemon from beyond the grave and also a message to Nerys because that's the kind of petty dickhole thing he does. So he gives Dark Sister the sword of the peerless knight Aemon the Dragon Knight who did nothing wrong in his entire life and was pious and stuck to everything and he gives it to his weird magical albino son that nobody likes and and just see and it just gives everybody the creeps because he seems like he's just like straight evil and then he gives him dark sister so i think that's the message there i think he gave it to blood raven because it amused him to give away his brother's sword to somebody that is the exact opposite of aemon it's also quite possible that aemon and blood raven didn't like each other they would pretty much have nothing in common, I would think. It'd be kind of like, would, does Barrison sell me like Varys? No, they hate each other because they're completely opposite people and they have a totally different way of viewing the world. So I think it was mostly meant as an insult to Aemon's memory to give it to Bloodraven. Because it's, there's no way Aegon didn't understand just on like, it's like a very surface level. Why that it would embarrass Aemon to have his sword go to his total opposite person. I think that makes sense. I don't much like the giving away of the sword, a black fire to Damon. I don't think there was, I don't think there was like a big strategy reason to it. I don't think he's like marking anybody as anything. I think he did it because it amused him in the moment. A Karina Strickle, a Karina Strick. Do you think Darren the Good was legitimate? It certainly seems like he's not. It definitely seems like if you're looking at the clear example between the king's guard and the queen there's multiple times this has happened throughout the story and in every single case it's turned out that yeah it actually it turned out the the king's guard was getting down and dirty with with the queen the only time it's not true is um with loris and marjorie but that's because loris is uh, you know gay not actually interested in his sister and not into incest but you know there's certainly a lot of hints that were at least a thing for a while Although all of her children end up being Harwin Strong's until his death. The rumors, there, there's not smoke without fire when you're talking about the queen knocking boots with somebody else in George's. And definitely Jamie and Cersei. Jamie and Cersei are the example that is used for, for Aemon and Neris. So George is certainly nodding very heavily to the idea that Daron is probably Aemon's son. Which would kind of make sense. Daron and, and Aegon are basically nothing alike. They're as far from each other as they can possibly get in personality, in their approach to the world, in the way they looked. Like, for instance, it's Aaron earlier was talking about how Daron didn't look that impressive. And that's kind of true. He was he kind of looked like homeless Harry Strickland. And that's not really what Aegon looked like. 
he w- ended up being just like hugely fat, but he was also in his youth, like a totally handsome party animal. And there's no part of that in Daron. Now that doesn't mean that somebody that's not like their father is, doesn't mean they're not related, but if you're looking for who they're actually like, it, actually it goes the other way where you'd think Damon was actually Eamon's son based on their physical prowess. That would be actually kind of funny. It was a reversal. What if George just like completely mixed it, mixed it up and he made it so that Eamon's son is actually Damon and Aegon's son is actually Daron and both of them think the opposite. That would be kind of interesting. But yeah, I, I would put it at like 70, 30 odds that Daron is actually not Aegon's son. We don't have a lot of like in-universe hints that way. We basically just have Aegon saying it over and over again. But if you're looking at the, the comparisons between that George is making between other characters who do the same thing, it would be unusual for George to nod so heavily at Jamie and Cersei and not make it true. Yeah, Daron probably looked like his mother. Ner- uh, Neris was notably... Oh, no. Yeah, Neris was uh, a pretty frail person. Yeah, that's a good point. Sasuke says it's kind of splitting hairs, though, because even though he's not his son, he still is a nephew with his own sister and brother. So they're all super close DNA. Yeah, they're all basically like brother cousins or sibling cousins at this point anyway. Uh, The incest is so strong at this point in the Targaryen dynasty that there's effectively no difference between sibling and cousin. They're all the same thing. I bet if you actually tried to describe their relationships to each other, if you track the incest back, it would be... You'd need like three or four titles for each of them to actually say what they are to each other. It's like a complicated web of everybody fucking each other when they're not supposed to. So yeah, that's my opinion. Daron is probably 70-30 odds that he's actually aimed. I would not be shocked to find out. So a question here from, I got an email from Tyler Dowdall. Dowdall, probably pronouncing that. Is Damon the greatest fighter of all time? Just that quote you tweeted makes him sound like a god with the sword. Better than the current Sword of the Morning, which is impressive as fuck. Yeah, that's Eustace Osgray says that Damon was the best warrior in the Seven Kingdoms and that he was better with Blackfire than Ulrich Dane was with Dawn, that he could have beaten anybody in the world. So is Damon actually the best fighter in the world during the Blackfire? So one thing to always keep in mind is a lot of these reputations come from people winning at tourneys or winning at, um, at melees and stuff like that. And a major part of the Dunkin' Egg series is showing us that, by the way, who wins at those things is often not who's most skilled. Even the most skilled competitors will take dies for political reasons or even betting reasons, like the snail in the Mystery Night loses on purpose in order to be paid off. And they tactically rig the, the different competitions so that certain people end up against each other. And then they throw the match and all that other kind of stuff. Actually, the snail, I think he propositions Duncan says, let, let the two of us go on tour. Everyone will bet on you and will bet on me to lose. And then, you know, there, there's a whole system he wants to use. He wants to use Dunk's reputation and his own to effectively make a lot of money rigging the tourney circuit. So the fact that Damon is really good at tourneys and that he's really good in the practice ring doesn't mean a lot, um, especially for popular princes. It is a, it is incredibly common for people to throw the matches against them. So you can't really take that as a as a true measure of their skill. Like when you look at characters like Barristan Selmy and Jamie Lannister, they're great swordsmen and described as great fighters because they went out and beat other great fighters. Like Jamie went and beat the, the Smiling Knight at a young age. Oh no, he didn't. No, that was Arthur Dane. But he went on the hunt for the Smiling Knight and ended up fighting with it. And other swordsmen were like, yeah, Jamie's pretty good. He's pretty good with his blade. 
Barristan Selmy fought in the Stepstones against the Nine Penny Kings, killed Nailies in cold blood. And when he there was no political reason for him to win, he actually was winning tourneys and beating people down. So there, there's definitely a demonstration of skill that is that is hard to manipulate. Now, Eustace Osgray does actually give examples, though, that Damon was a great fighter. In particular, his fight against, I think it was Corbray. One sec. One of the Kingsguard. Gawain Corbray. Yeah, he fought against Damon Blackfire at Redgrass Field. And the two of them fought, I think, for like an hour or something crazy like that. With people actually just standing back and watching the display of their skill. And Eustace goes on to describe other fighters throughout the battle that Damon was essentially just walking up to and destroying. So those examples are the far more indicative ones, the ones where people are actually trying to kill Damon and they're unable to. Wait, did I say in cold blood? Wait, what did I say in cold blood too? I might have misspoke there. But yeah, so during the actual Blackfire rebellions, when Damon has people trying to kill him, he's able to defend himself and defeat most opponents that come to him. And to the point that that he has to be killed by arrows instead of actually killing him in a battle, like actually somebody walking up with a sword and trying to kill him. Of course, part of that would be that Damon would have a large amount of people following him around, making sure nobody's going to kill him. But even still, Damon wins pretty much every sword fight we hear from him. And especially Eustace Osgray saw Damon doing it on the battlefield. Now, he loves Damon, but you can't deny that he was winning those fights, more or less. So I'm going to guess that if Damon's not the actual best swordsman at the time, the actual best fighter, then he's really close. You just have to throw out all the stuff about the tourneys and like, him putting on displays of him fighting people in the tourney ring or in the practice ring or showing off. Like when it actually came down to it, Damon won pretty much every fight he was in. So yeah, Damon's probably the, if not the best, then close to the best fighter alive, especially with Eamon the Dragon Knight dead. Eamon was said to be the best one who actually just, again, who actually had to prove it. Eamon had to fight quite a lot of people and he won most of the time. So another question here from uh, Tyler, he said, do you think he would have been a better ruler if he had won? Would the realm have benefited in any way? No, probably not. Um, Damon's claim to fame is largely his ability to kill people with swords and his ability to lead armies. So the reason to want somebody like that to be your king is that you're planning to conquer things. So what were they going to conquer? Well, the obvious place is to go down to Dorne and try and finish the conquest. To essentially, I mean, Aemon the Dragon Knight. I'm talking about Aemon the Dragon Knight, not his son Aemon. That there was a lot of support at the beginning of the Blackfire Rebellions to essentially rip up the alliance between Dorne and the Iron Throne and go back down there and kick the shit out of some Dornish, get revenge and go back and all that stuff. So if you want Damon as king, that's basically the reason to do it because there's really nothing else to conquer. You're not going north to fight off the free folk because nobody gives a shit about that land. It's not valuable. What are you going to do? Go fight for the step zones? You're going to go try and take over some of the Valyrian daughters? Like the alliance he has with Tyrosh, I guess... Would have allowed Damon to maybe make some headway into expanding into Essos, but nobody holds anything in Essos. Like <laughs> all the history we know about them is after the fall of the Valyrian Empire with no dragons, basically somebody conquers one of the other cities and then they lose it within like the next 20 years. So it's unlikely that Damon would have actually expanded the realm much other than, yeah, maybe the step zones and probably would have been another long war against Dorne. So, and the other thing too compare that to is that Daron's was a pretty good king. He did a good job at it. You know, he was able to use diplomacy. He was able to effectively fight off multiple rebellions. He seemed fair. The people liked him. So if you're going from 
Daron, you're essentially saying what would have helped the situation was a, was a guy with a sword going to beat the shit out of people, which was happening anyway. So I don't, I don't think it wouldn't have made much difference. And it's not like even if Damon won, it's not like the Targaryens were going to not want their throne back. It would have still ended up with rebellions unless they somehow rounded up everybody and killed them, which, as we saw from Bloodraven trying to do it, is basically impossible. So, oh, I said Barrison killed uh, Melis in cold blood. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. He killed him in uh, a one-on-one combat, not cold blood. Uh, yeah, we're just about done with the stream. Uh, I know I started late because of the technical problems, so we're just going a little bit more, just a few more questions, and we'll, we'll hang up, as it were. But yeah, I, I don't think the realm would have benefited by Damon being in control. Daron solved the Dornish problem anyway. He brought them into the realm by, by marriage and political alliance, and it's... That has continued to this day. You essentially be, it's not like Ares versus Robert, where there's a good case for the king abdicating his duty. That's not what the war is about. It's not about Daron being a bad king. In fact, he was a very good king. It's more that it was the goal of having a different sort of ruler in charge. Essentially, they wanted to go kill people and they wanted to go uh, conquer and all that other kind of stuff. So yeah, I don't think there would have been any benefit to Damon being the better ruler being in charge than uh, Daron. The only thing that would have made a difference is that Bloodraven probably wouldn't be in control. And if you don't like Bloodraven in his way of doing things, then that's probably a net positive. But Daron and, and his sons and his grandchildren were all pretty good kings. The only bad ones was basically Arian. And what are you going to do about that one? Let's see here. Was Bloodraven justified in kinslaying him? And is he really to blame? <clears throat> Can't be proven it was his arrow, right? Uh, so... Was Bloodraven justified in ending the war by shooting down Aemon and his sons, Aegon and Aemon? That is a tough question. I think you have to, I think it's a, it's a tough question because it's designed to be. It's essentially, were the effective assassinations done in battle worth it in order to, to effectively end the rebellion? If it had worked, like maybe, but the way that Bloodraven ended Daemon's uh, rebellion and killed him and his sons effectively and also allowed the rest of the Blackfires to escape with Bittersteel ensured that the rebellions would continue happening, especially because of uh, Damon's alliances in Essos. So Bloodraven definitely did it. It was him. I would guess it was actually him that um, some sort of weirwood magic or just he's really good with a bow, but it, it doesn't matter if it was his hand or if it was the Raven's teeth, it was him. They're the ones that shot down Damon. Was he? I don't know. That's a tough question. This is like the same thing that goes down to our assassinations. I guess at that point that they were literally in a full on rebellion, that they were fighting in the middle of the kingdoms, that everything was going to hell, that Bloodraven is probably justified in assassinating Damon. I'm guessing he wouldn't be if he had done it beforehand, if he had like tried to do a, a preventative assassination or something like that. I think that Kinslaying is different between Renly and Stannis because they're like actually Damon and Bloodraven are half siblings at that point, but maybe that doesn't matter as much. I mean, if you're talking about from a kinslaying perspective, like, I don't know, they're both wrong in the sense that you sh probably shouldn't kill your family. But if your family's trying to kill you, what are you supposed to do? It's a tough one. Yeah, you kill them. The way he did it, people considered it, what is it? A, a dishonorable way to kill Damon Blackfire, to shoot him down with a bunch of arrow. Which B Blood Raven's point is like, what? I should have walked up and tried to kill him, like with a sword? Like, that wouldn't have worked. His is the pragmatic approach. I don't know. It's a good question. Good one for the comments. In the comments after the stream, throw them down there. Do you think Bloodraven was justified in killing Damon Blackfire and his sons on Red Grass Field? It's a good question. Oh, well, he's, a lot of people consider snipers basically like 
that that kind of tactic is dishonorable and immoral and that they consider even during a battle like an assassination. There's something that people really don't like about a, about that kind of warfare. I don't have an answer for you. I'm sorry. Yes and no, maybe. I, it's hard to say. So the last thing that I got was I got a very long email from uh, Patrick Doherty, and he wanted to talk a lot about Damon Blackfire. And he made an interesting case that I don't think I had read before about, about Damon as the rightful heir to the Iron Throne. I sort of summarized it earlier, but basically the idea goes like this. He makes the case that Dana the Defiant, Damon's mother, is the actual heir to the Iron Throne after Baylor dies. But And if not her, then it should definitely be Damon, following the precedent that both great councils recognized that even if the mother doesn't have a claim because woman, I guess, is their argument, then her sons do have, for instance, who is it? Rhaenys' children, Laenor Valarion is second runner-up basically to Viserys. So in that sense, you could make the argument that yes, Daemon does have a legitimate claim that has nothing to do with with Aegon giving him a sword. As the last surviving, as the oldest child of King Aegon III, any child of Dana should come before any of Viserys' children, or at least there should be like a great council to decide it. And that's part of the reason that I read that email and I was also doing my notes. I was like, yeah, maybe Viserys actually had a good reason for the Maiden Vault. And like allowing Baylor to do insane things as long as it meant he didn't have children. Because yeah, there there definitely is an argument to be made that Dana should be heir, or if not her, then Damon. Although the problem being that Damon was a bastard. So no matter what, the Lords of Restoros would not have approved Damon. He would have to be legitimized, therefore making Damon the heir. It's actually kind of complicated in the way it happens that if let me finish the rest of his arguments. So Baylor and by extension of Viserys II allowed them to be locked away in the main vault as ensured that Viserys would rise to the throne after Baylor being the last male heir of Aeg King Aegon III. And he also makes the case that Daemon was actually an unwilling claimant, that Daemon was pushed into rebellion by his mother Dana and the supposed and his supposed father making the case that he should be king when Daemon didn't want to do it. And that it was essentially a like a covert op from Bloodraven and his allies at court to force Damon to raise his banners early before he had even really committed to doing it. Also making the case, I mean, I'm just going to double check this. I want to make sure I'm not uh, misrepresenting. It, it was it was really long. I, could, I couldn't read it all out. Yeah, he, he goes on to make the case that Dana was the, the force behind Damon because up until the point of the rebellion, even though it's definitely said in the history that Damon was had committed to actually going and rebelling and fighting the what would become known as the Blackfire rebellions, his actions don't really make that case. Like for instance, he had been given leave to build his castle, but there's no castle outside the Blackwater Rush. So even though Aegon had given him money and Dar and Daron had too to do it, he didn't follow through. He didn't build a stronghold. We don't even know where on the Blackwater Rush that uh, Damon's lands would have been for his house and stuff like that. So it doesn't seem like he had really tactically committed to it. And it's also the the idea that Pat brings up that if if Daron if Damon was actually such a threat, if he was about to try and overthrow the realm and this was very serious, why did they only send like two Kingsguard members to go arrest him? Why not send the Raven's teeth? Why not send hundreds of guards to go get Damon and make it a big public thing. It seems like uh, from Pat's perspective that Bloodraven had decided to, to effectively push Damon into the civil war by using his magic powers to figure it out ahead of time. 
and then exposing it and putting it into a situation where Damon had no choice at that point but to actually rebel. And that it was basically Dana trying to push Damon and he was resisting. We saw the same thing with Aegon II, that he didn't actually want to be king of Westeros. He didn't want to overthrow Rhaenyra. And in fact, the quotes we get from Fire and Blood is him going like, what? No, Rhaenyra is the heir. Why are you saying I am? I'm not the heir. That's that's not how this works. So I don't know about the second part from Pat about the the the, the blood raving conspiracy theory and Dana's role and Aegon's role in trying to push Damon as a a un an unmotivated rebellion, basically that he didn't want to do it and he was pushed into it. But I think you can definitely make the case that Damon's reasons for rebellion have a lot to do with the people around him and a lot of people whispering in his ear for reasons that have nothing to do with Damon. Like Bittersteel's reason for pushing Damon to do it is is very personal that he that Bittersteel does it because he doesn't like Daron and he really doesn't like uh, Bloodraven and that he wants Shira Seastar and that's the way he thinks he can do it. There's quite a lot of lords that rally behind Damon because they want to go back to war with Dorne and it doesn't really have anything to do with his claim. It's just that they perceive that he might be more open to that kind of thing than uh, Daron would. And especially going back to the characterization earlier that there's no real um, discussion about actually how smart Damon is. If he's if he's kind of like a himbo character, if he's kind of a kind of slow on the uptake a little bit, it wouldn't make total sense that he was being manipulated and that he was being pushed into a war that if he was left alone, he never would have started. You can make the same argument for young Griff. Like if Varys and Lyra Mopatis weren't effectively training young Griff to go to war with Westeros and eventually Daenerys, would he do it? No, probably not. He would probably stay on the shy mid. He seems pretty happy with that. So I think if you're looking for a parallel to what is Damon's involvement in the start of the Blackfire rebellions, I think you can look at young Griff as a pretty good example, like or Aegon II, where there is a claim to be made, but it seems like the reason it happened is that everyone around them were pushing them to go forward with it. And the heat at a certain point after Blood Raven's actions, he didn't really have a choice. I think that's more or less Pat's argument. I think that's a I think that's a fairly reasoned one. I'm not sure about the details of all the stuff he's talking about, but if you want to, I think that's a, a fair interpretation of Damon Blackfire. And I especially like uh, the first part of the email where he brings up the idea that that the Maiden Vault was allowed to continue because it, because Damon and Dana and her sisters were actually should have been next in line to the throne. That is probably an underrated part of the Maiden Vault that it's sort of, I mean, we, we laughed about it during the stream. We're like, ha 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 ha, like crazy. Baylor putting women in vaults isn't that crazy well it's like well there's a lot of people that let him keep doing that like Baylor is a pretty unstable weird guy there's good reasons that other people in particular Viserys and Aegon would have to continuing the maiden vault even though it's that's such a ridiculous thing to do there's practical reasons and powerful reasons for them to do it I'm just gonna make sure I didn't get this wrong yeah and a lot of this email is that Dana is a much more active character than the history gives her credit for that her defiance wasn't just trying to get out of the maiden vault it was more closer to like uh Visenya or closer to Reyna Targaryen the previous one sister of Jaehaerys who was upset at being denied her rights much more like a Rhaenyra character which I think is a fairly insightful thing to say. Way to go, Pat. I like the email. We'll probably just take like one more question and we'll get out of here my voice is starting to go. Let's see if we can do any of these quickly. Let me scroll up. Yeah, this would make a good Learn Hands episode. <laughs> Lots of good uh, Learn Hands episodes. And Guilty Undertaker says, if you take Dana's true heir, Damon's still a bastard. Unless he, unless his legitimate father is revealed, then 
or if he marries if he marries Dana, or if he's legitimized, then yeah, Damon's full full systems go on his clan, which is essentially what happens. Aegon the Fourth just basically says Damon is legitimate, and if you go through uh, Dana's line and you use the justification that if Lenor Valarian had a claim, and so does Damon, then yeah, that's one that works without Aegon's involvement or any stupid sword shenanigans. Let's see here. Baylor hadn't been such a loon, she would have given birth to the next king. Yeah, her, well, yeah, probably, but it probably would have been Aegon's king, uh, kid anyway. It never, it probably would not have been Baylor's. Her shame says if he had built, started building Blood Raven, probably have pulled it down, like the White Walls instru- instruction to prevent there being a shrine of Prigamish Damon. That's certainly possible. We just don't hear anything. We don't have any details about even where his lands were or if he started building a castle. If he never actually did it, then that would make a good case that he wasn't he wasn't thinking about starting a war because generally you need some kind of hold fast in order to do that somewhere to to retreat to and damage didn't as far as we can tell but it's certainly possible blood raven ripped it down that'd be something cool to see in the future here mike hall says do you think aegon the fourth wants to legitimize his lowborn bastards as well as the great bastards could be an unknown older bastard who's supposed to be the heir he supposedly legitimized all of his bastards lowborn to highborn but nobody cared about the lowborn because the highborn ones were so powerful. I mean, Bittersteel had the Golden Company. Well, he eventually had the Golden Company. Damon had a lot of support. Bloodraven basically had a private army. Shear Seastar basically led both Bittersteel and Bloodraven around by the ear. So even there are certainly Targaryen lineages out there from these lesser bastards. I don't think George is ever going to write them, though. But if you were talking about in terms of like Crusader Kings or something like that, the, the Game of Thrones mod for Crusader Kings, there would be just so many children. I think Aegon Brad, he had like sex with 900 women or something like that, and condoms weren't a thing. So yeah, there would have been a lot more than just the great bastards out there. It's just like, it's the same thing as Mia Stone. She's Robert Baratheon's oldest child by like a long shot, but nobody cares because there's no political will to make to get her to do anything. Nobody sees a path to the throne through Mia, even though they probably should certainly possible that Harry the Air and Mia Stone may have been a thing Bronze Jan, Royce, Bronze Jan Royce was thinking about for the future, or maybe for one of his sons. There's honestly a lot of Targaryen, forgotten Targaryens, mostly through the female line, that George just, there's no record of them where they went. So in all of this, in the back of your head, you should be thinking that there's quite a lot of people with a drop or two of dragon blood running around the Seven Kingdoms, not just from Aegon, but um, just from all these all the marriages that went out to other families and interacted. Like there's the pollen girl in Dorne who supposedly has dragon dreams. So somehow, maybe from Daenerys, uh, the original Daenerys, the one that uh, married into the Martells, maybe there's some sort of Targaryen line that made its way into that minor house. George just doesn't keep track of them. Let's see here. Any last ones? UFC is on? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Patrick Doherty. That was his email. It was, it was honestly, Pat, you should just put that out as like on Reddit on a blog or something. I think you made some good arguments and some really good, uh, insightful points. Good job by you. You think much harder about Damon Blackfire than I do, to be honest. I had to do a lot of brushing up on this. I was cracking the world of ice and fire. I was looking through the quotes and all that stuff. And I had to, I had to give myself a refresher on Damon, which is why I got the ages wrong. Whoops-a-daisy. How would a lowborn person prove they were Aegon's bastard? I don't know. You could probably just say it and people would believe you. Like, yeah, probably, but who gives a shit? It's not like there's any dragons around for them to steal. This would have been a bigger problem when the dragons were alive, like the dragon seeds. If one of them could be like Ulf the White or Hugh the Hammer, but at that point, they're 
There's no difference. So we're going to, you can go watch UFC in a few minutes. I, we're just about done. I would definitely like to see an expansion like Pat is talking about, like what is Dana's role in the, the Blackfire stuff, but we're probably never going to get it. I don't even know what book that would be in Fire and Blood Part 2, maybe, if we ever get that. So, I mean, that's pretty far down the list. George just said he's doing Wins of Winter first before he gets to any of the other stuff. So there's a lot of Dunkin' Egg to go. Dream of Spring, maybe at some point. So I'm doubting we'll ever get Tumblr's Fall. I've never heard of this. You said that in your email. I was just like, what? What is Tumblr's Fall? Lies on Blackwater Rush, a town in the southern Riverlands near Stony Sep. I've never heard of this place. Was Damon in charge of there? As far as I know, I, I didn't, I don't think there's anywhere went that uh, Dame, that we know where Damon actually ruled from. But maybe he did. Maybe I just sort of, maybe that was lost in the details that Pat noticed in his extreme interest in Damon Blackfire and I have. My interest usually runs more towards House Strong. King, yeah, King Jaharius's daughter that went off to Essos. There's also quite a, there's also quite a lot of hints that King Jaharius himself had a lot of bastards. He just essentially said and people believed him but he probably had a bunch of bastards he went on his uh his whole thing through he did his royal progresses a few of them without his wife so you can imagine i think that's about it we'll do a stream in the future doing more about damon blackfire talking about the beginning of the blackfire rebellions because they largely at a certain point be stopped being about damon himself and they become more about the individual characters and SOS versus westerosi politics but i really wanted to focus on damon himself i mean we may never see this. Maybe there will be a TV show one day about the Blackfire Rebellions or something like that. That would probably be the best. That's probably the most likely way we'll ever get more information about it. Yeah, pondering those strong eggs. Yeah, I agree, Guilty Undertaker. I definitely am going to make a video about the idea that Alisane had like 17 kids, but how many did Jaharis have? I think it would be interesting if they both had the same amount of kids, but not all of them with each other. But I think there's a, there's a definite time frame in Alisane's life and certain relationships she had with characters who are known to be on the, the sultry side that I think suggests that not all of her kids are Jaharis's and vice versa. Yeah, maybe Fire and Blood 2 will show this history. Fire and Blood 2 ends with Aegon being crowned. So Aegon the third. So it would if there's a Fire and Blood 2, I guess it would lead up to this and we'll get a lot more information about it. George loves the Blackfire Rebellion so much though. It would be, I think it would be hard for him to say, to just not make that a whole book. I think he would want to make like a Fire and Blood Part 3 just about Damon and the Blackfire Rebellion. But maybe he would just skip over a lot of stuff in like Viserys' reign and get right to the stuff he wants to talk about. Like how most of Fire and Blood is the Dance of the Dragons. Maybe most of Fire and Blood Part 2 would be the dance, would be the Blackfire Rebellion. Or it's the Dance of the Dragons and the Blackfire Rebellion. Anyway, I think that's about it. I want to thank you guys all for super chats and stuff like that if you want to support me uh, you can go to patreon.com slash joe magician get access to the dying light read through we're going through as long as some other patron only uh, content like outtakes there's content on there in the past with me and eliana and gray area a few other things on there like some of george's other works like meat house band and not night sand kings you know also get access to the very special joe magician slack where Everyone was feverishly trying to help me figure out my audio shows at the at the start of this. Really great group group, group of people, very friendly. So if you feel up to it, if you feel like uh, throwing some money my way, Patreon would be the way to do it. You get the most out of it that way. I mean, I do appreciate the super chats and stuff like that, but you know, just, Patreon's probably your best bang for your buck. I, I don't give anything else first, that's, but I appreciate them both and I thank them all very much and the PayPal donations. So yeah, content coming out. 
Dying of the Light Chapter 11 will be coming out tomorrow for all Maester levels and up, so that's at the $5 level and up. We're going to be doing chapters 12 and 13 this month, and I think we're going to finish the book in January or February. So look forward to that. It's definitely come out about two weeks apart. I am working on more videos. I've got a script going. I had to kind of throw out what I was doing because I didn't like where it was going. So I've also got a bunch of ideas for future ones I'm going to do. So look forward for that stuff. I'll figure it out when I'm going to schedule the next stream. I'm thinking we might do these every two weeks instead of every week, but that's subject to change. I'll definitely put it out on YouTube and Patreon and Twitter and that kind of stuff so that you guys know when to find all the stuff you're looking for. So thank you, everybody. Make sure you like and subscribe if you haven't. And actually, for, for what you should put in the comments, what do you think of Blood Raven's killing of Damon Blackfire? on the red grass field. We didn't talk about that this much. This one that'll be in a future stream. But do you think Blood Raven was justified in killing Damon and his sons the way that he did? I think that's a pretty good moral question and a tough one to answer really. So thanks everybody. I will see you all next time.